0: Act. Nobody sees you. You are not fat. Honey, you're husky. You're, you're well built. You're macho. You're fat, Ma. Oh, yeah. You're a really cool person, Victor. We got here or if we're we'll staying long What I said last night seemed right But this morning looks so wrong Well we got lost <laughs> It's Mr. Oh yeah All that's left on Is the mystery. nobody knows you didn't tell anybody i didn't want anything to change god if your life had a face i would punch it yeah wait what Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 308, Heavy. And this is listener request number 35, courtesy of Rob. Who would have thought Debbie Harry would be back in our lives so quick? (laughs) (laughs) I actually feel like I didn't bust your balls enough
2: yeah. for not knowing what Debbie Harry looked like. I have a shirt with Debbie Harry's face on it. I don't know. I I didn't recognize her again. <laughs> Lindsay was like Debbie Harry again. You're like what? <laughs> <laughs> no, really, you didn't? There was a little bit of a moment. I no, think she I saw I looks saw the same as I video. S- drama. I saw her name in the credits this time. Yes,
1: yeah, so we're of course talking about the 1995 debut. Feature film from James Mangold. This was one that Rob requested that neither of us had seen before. Yeah. But I'm glad that he did because
2: I think we both enjoyed it a lot. Definitely. I will say, watching it, I was like, are these the characters from a Hold study song? <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just our lives? Yeah. So before we get into Heavy,
1: let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Where you can do a request like Rob, although it is going to cost you some money now. We have a cash app and all that situation there. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that more at the end of the episode. But you can also reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. Greatestpod at gmail.com. And we will potentially read your email on the show. We will be reading another email at the end of this episode. Mail time. And if you'd like a free sticker, you can reach out to us and we will mail that to you. And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. So let's get into Heavy, 1995, written and directed by James Mangold. As I said, this is his feature film debut. Mangold, I believe, one of the more underappreciated directors of our time. He's pretty much got a lot of bangers. There's a few dips in there. I'm going to run through in a second. But the big thing is that he has been entrusted to potentially close out what we know of as Indiana Jones. I don't know if it will continue post Harrison Ford in some way, shape, or form. But Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. That's right. Maybe not the best name ever. That's coming out this year, believe it or not. So We'll see what Mangold does with it now that Spielberg has just moved on into
2: the producer role. Another one of those guys that doesn't have that auteur touch or anything, but generally makes good movies. Heavy, 1995.
1: Copland, 1997. Girl Interrupted, 1999. So right off the bat, bangers. Mm -hmm. Okay, 2001, Kate and Leopold. I don't know what 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 was going on there. (laughs) Although I guess that established a relationship with Hugh Jackman that would pay dividends later. Sure. Identity, 2003. Underrated. I saw that in the theater. I liked Identity. It's been years since I've seen it. I know. I don't know that... It probably it would... doesn't hold up. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if it would or not. I saw it in the theater in 2003. Uh-huh. That's the only time I ever saw it. It was a big rental for me. Walk the Line in 2005. Not I Walk the Line, which we mentioned in the last episode, but Walk the The line. other one. 310 to Yuma remake in 07.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Night and day in 2010 with Tom Cruise. I've never seen that. Same, but I do remember when it came out. The Wolverine in 2013. I don't think I saw that either. That was the second Wolverine movie. Uh huh. I did see it, and not, not much great. to say.
2: I was okay. I was okay on it. But then
1: Logan 2017, awesome. Definitely. Ford versus Ferrari 2019, also awesome. So back on track, heading yeah. into Indiana Jones. I just wanted to run through that because I I think that. There might be a fair amount of people out there who aren't super familiar with James Mangold. He's not really like a household name type director for a lot of people, but really strong stuff. Copland and Girl Interrupted back to back. Like two completely different types of stories. Boom. Yeah, he's got a little bit of that Curtis Hansen thing. A little bit, yeah, although more prolific. So many movies. Okay, heavy, probably not super well-known. I know that Matt and I had not seen it before, so if you were like us and this is a new one to you, you can watch it right now on Netflix, thank God, because that was the only place it was available, even if you were willing to
2: rent it. Wow. Not anywhere else. You love when we get these types of listener requests. Although, by the way, did you see that there's a Brotherhood of the Wolf 4K coming out?
1: (laughs) Yes, I did. I might buy it, actually.
2: Check out Heavy on Netflix. But yeah, the fact that this
1: is a movie that is on DVD only, I think is sort of out of print on DVD and then not on Blu-ray and not really available anywhere else. That, to me, tells me this is a very personal pick for Rob, oh, a yeah. movie that he's probably enjoyed for a long time. And definitely uh, so up our... Hopefully we can live up to it.
2: I would say up our alley.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I was saying to you before we started recording that even though there's not a ton of dialogue in the film and there's not a a ton that really happens as far as action two things that you would generally associate with tv more i actually had that feeling that this was kind of like a television series which i mean as a compliment because i mean that the characters were so well developed so quickly like you Mm -hmm. just got who these people were that you felt like you knew them as if they were television characters that you had watched for years or something and since I break up the movies when I do the notes, it did feel like I was returning to a world every time. And then when I was taking the breaks in between, yeah. whether it was going to be finishing it the next day or whatever, I would be thinking about that world as mm-hmm. if it was a, a recurring thing rather than just a what 100-minute a movie.
2: I'm actually not saying this as a self-deprecating joke. There was like a comfort and familiarity to this world. Yeah, well,
1: I definitely thought that this was your world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right down to the Genesee beer signs all over the place from my time in upstate New York.
1: Mangold wrote the screenplay for Heavy while attending filmmaking seminars at Columbia University and partly based it on real people he knew while growing up in upstate New York. Filming took place on location in and around Berryville and Hyde Park, New York in 1993 some scenes were filmed at the culinary institute of america's campus there heavy premiered at the sundance film festival where it won the special jury prize and was later screened at Cannes, where it competed for the camera d'Or. it then had a very brief theatrical run i think what mangold was going for according to him was a silent film with sound if that makes any sense a lot of expression a lot of nuance, a lot of character, but not necessarily a lot of talking, especially from the lead character, Victor, who rarely speaks, Mm -hmm. but has such an expressive face, and you can see the whole world written in his expressions. Oh, yeah. He thought of Victor as a most unlikely centerpiece of a motion picture. I think that's fair. He wanted to make something stripped of Hollywood aesthetic and artifice and cited The Last Picture Show from 1971 and HUD from 1963 as influences. Well,
2: Last Picture Show, certainly a show favorite.
1: Yeah, I think that Heavy really, as far as the expression versus dialogue, it really captures a certain mood and a lot of nuance, exploring mundane, everyday life in a way where you sink into the characters, you immediately grasp who these people are. Oh, yeah. And I think that it leaves enough on the table for you to do some of the work yourself, too. In other words, things happen in the film, and then they don't really come out and tell you, oh, this is why Victor is like this, or this is why Victor has this specific life. But then you can piece it together on your own through the context clues. Oh, this is what happened to his father, and then as a result, his mother became like this and then he sort of got rolled up into her grief, and then this just happened to be his life. Time went by. Sure. You blink, and it just goes right by you, and then you're there. Tough to watch and deal with, really. I think there's a little taste of the Southern Gothic, a la Tennessee Williams or something like that, too, where it's sort of building towards something at the end, and then there's a big emotional payoff or Uh a twist to it. In a weird way, Heavy became... A little bit of a rock and roll film by accident. James Mangold happened to meet Liv Tyler, daughter of Steven Tyler when she was 16 and was a model, wanted to get into films. He writes this movie. He thinks of her to be in it. She knows Debbie Harry. Oh, yeah. I guess just because
0: rock the people part of the know same rock world? people. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was the New York rock and roll scene. They get Debbie Harry to be in it. Evan Dando of the Lemonheads... His cast is cast as the boyfriend character because Mangold liked his music, so he's and in it. Does some songs for it too, right? Well, he performs in the movie. Yeah. The soundtrack was actually done by Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. Oh, okay. He does like the weird instrumentals, which yeah, yeah. <laughs> are a little bit ominous and menacing. Definitely. I wasn't really sure right. why. I get that there's a somber tone to the film. Totally. But it's almost as if something really fucked up is going to happen. Well, it, there's like an anxiety to it. Yeah. Which I guess adds to the feeling of the film, but it, it definitely leads you to believe something really fucked
2: up. I will say one is about to happen. positive, when you have a character like Victor, it definitely makes me feel like I could be an actor. Like there is a need for it. You mean aesthetically? Yeah. <laughs> there isn't. Not for you.
1: <laughs> well, even the role of Victor almost went to Pixie's frontman, Black I Francis. I did read that, yeah. So that's another rock and roll thing that almost happened with this movie. And... It's really not that movie. There's really nothing rock and roll about it. It's just weird how that all kind of sure. got pieced together by well, yeah, the scenes. Well, yeah, and
2: even Liv Tyler having kind of a similar thing going on with her character in Empire Records, which was what, the same year or the next year? It
1: ended up being released the same year, although this was filmed yeah. prior, because this went on that little festival circuit and took a while to come out. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really make... A huge impression as far as box office or anything like that. Although it did get really good reviews, and I'm eventually going to read a quote from Roger Ebert that really put this movie over.
2: I love these simple movies in simple places. It's very calming for me. (laughs) (laughs) So before we jump into the plot itself, I guess we'll just say
1: that this will probably be a pretty short episode just because not a lot necessarily happens in the film, but also... You may have noticed that the opening clip was like a horrific sounding trailer, which is really the only thing that I could track down.
2: Not a lot of heavy material out there.
1: There were a few scenes that I was like, if this was on YouTube or something, we would use it, but there weren't a ton of clips that could have been out there, but there was none that were, Mm. is how I want to say it. So there's not going to be any clips, it's just going to be our two voices. Oh, soothing. Yeah, People are immediately shutting this off, like, oh, God. (laughs) I'm out. An hour of these two clowns. (laughs) No thanks. All right, let's get into it. We'll see where it goes. I don't have a plethora of notes, but we'll see. In rural upstate New York, 30-something-year-old Victor, played by Pruitt Taylor Vance, works as a cook at Pete and Dolly's, a small roadhouse tavern founded by and named after his now-deceased father and elderly mother.
2: Hmm. Almost like a uh, Norman Bates situation going on here.
1: I've always heard it pronounced Vance. It's spelled Vince. It's Pruitt Taylor Vance or Vince. Okay. But I've heard it pronounced Vance. I'm not 100% sure because when you look at that spelling, you just think Vince. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Hopefully I have that right. Victor lives with his mom too. I guess the one major difference... From the Bates Motel situation would be that his mother is actually alive. For now. She is a little domineering. Yeah. She's a big personality. We're going to get into his mother in a minute. His childhood bedroom is very much stuck in time. He is supposed to be 30-something. Yeah. He seems to be late 30s. (laughs) He looks old. Part of it is that he's overweight
2: balding it's a little bit of a man child thing going on here for sure yeah
1: he's got the football stuff all over the place he's got the ferret Fawcett poster which is the iconic poster we see it tons of times in the movie
2: if you think about it for too long i think you end up in a really bummed place
1: that's true but that's just because we're projecting our societal norms onto him that's right what yeah. he is doing in a sense though that is good is that he's taking care of his mother or helping to definitely but when you get into stories like this be it movies or television or novels or whatever what ultimately becomes the story whether the ailing parent be it mother or father lives or dies is that at some point you have to live your own life as painful as that may be and as difficult as that may be obviously you don't want to abandon them completely Mm -hmm. but you can't sacrifice your whole life caring for your parents like you just can't do it or else you're never living your own life Especially when you have a mother who may be a little bit too dependent on you. And that's something that they don't really push too hard in the story. Because, again, I think they do leave those things up for you to decide for yourself what the story is. But I think that there is a certain amount of grief that has been going on for a long time yeah, over the father. And then Victor has become sort of collateral damage. Even though he probably had his own grief for his father. But he's become collateral damage to his mother's grief. He's never going to be able to
2: live his own life. But how great is Pete and Dolly's <laughs> <laughs> what a This place. place
1: looks so comfortable and I great. Know. I
2: what is the dude that hangs out here all the time? Lou? Leo. Leo. Oh, let's be real. This very easily could have been my life. Leo? Could be my life again at some point. Leo or Victor, really. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Leo or Dolly. I, I'd probably be living like Leo but looking like Victor. And never scoring with Dolores. Definitely. For sure. Yeah even though somehow both of them have the opportunity to it.
1: The interior of Pete and Dolly is very wood-based, very old-school, old-school television in the bar, but it is also a restaurant, because they have children in there in one scene. It's not just like a bar. It's a roadside restaurant-type place.
2: Type of place my dad used to take me to.
1: (laughs) Vance was the last person cast in the film. They couldn't quite figure out who to pick For Victor, Pruitt Taylor Vance, you would probably recognize him. He's been in a million things. He's mostly a character actor. This is one of his few leading roles, Mm -hmm. I guess you would say. He's been around forever. They had to feed him donuts and Kentucky Fried Chicken, though, because he wasn't really fat. And I think that's sort of a weird, pardon the pun, elephant in the room with this Mm -hmm. movie, is that it's named Heavy. He's a little bit fat. Yes, he's not really someone you would ever... Expect to be in a romantic situation with Liv sure. Tyler, but I never got the sense that he was
2: like huge or anything in the movie. No, and you, you're
1: expecting King it Kong seems Bundy like a or something
2: bigger guy, but not. He's somebody... bigger, but not. What's eating Gilbert Grape? Right, like, <laughs>
1: which is sort of the impression you would get from hearing the title and then reading the description. You're thinking yeah. hidden away from society, <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is maybe unfair, and I'm projecting my own thoughts onto what it would mean.
2: When he stands on that scale, you and me are like, well, we're not that far away from that number. (laughs) I mean, maybe above it.
1: (laughs) No, I'm just thinking he's a few weeks away from being in shape. Like, he's not that far away from it. Yeah, it's in reach. That's a good way of putting it. He's still within reach. So, all right. It's time to part ways with the hair. You got to shave it. Got to go. <laughs> yeah, whatever is cl- you're clinging to is that's actually worse than the way. Yeah, weight. yeah. But yeah, Leo. When you start this movie for the first time, I don't think you're expecting Leo to factor in as much. But then you realize that's just a guy who's at the bar all the time, every yeah. fucking night, <laughs> and whatever his relationship is with Dolores is beyond our comprehension. Yeah. I don't get it. Victor's mother. Dolly is in poor health and spends her days sitting in a chair in the back of the kitchen, reminiscing about her late husband and the old days. Dolly is played by the legendary Shelley Winters, who is an icon for a lot of reasons. First of all, she started acting in the 40s and was in a million things, including legendary stuff like Lolita, The Night of the Hunter, A Place in the Sun, Poseidon Adventure, whatever, a million fucking movies, a legend. But when she got old and fat, and I, I'm just going to throw the word around. I don't care. Okay. She didn't give a fuck. Yeah. She still acted, which was awesome. That's great. She's in a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s. She played Roseanne's mom, I think. Oh. Or was it Dan's mom? I know she was in Roseanne for a while, too, right. in the 90s. She just worked forever. She worked up until, like, 99. I don't mean the age 99, but the year 1999. Okay. In casting the part of Dolly, Mangold sought golden age Hollywood actress Shelley Winters, who was in her mid-70s at the time. Mangold tracked her down to her address in her Manhattan apartment and sent her the film script along with a letter stating his admiration of her work. Within two days, Winters returned Mangold's contract and subsequently was cast in the
2: film. Something we're going to have to try when we get into our filmmaking career. Well, I just think it was weird because she was
1: current. I think he just skipped over like trying to figure out If she had an agent or whatever. Because like I said, I think she was on Roseanne during these years and was in other stuff too. It wasn't like she was reclusive. Right. He just went like directly to her. According to Mangold, Pruitt Taylor Vance and Shelley Winters clashed early on during the production. Mangold said that as Vance was preparing for what was his first leading role in a film, he had felt upstaged by Winters. Mangold said that given her reputation as a Hollywood star, she had been very loud and theatrical, making Vance feel overshadowed. With tensions running high,
2: Hmm.
1: Mangold went to Winters and told her that she had to make things right with him. Winters begrudgingly agreed, and on the next day, when they were preparing to shoot, Winters had Vance meet her on set in front of the cast and crew. Winters told Vance of all the famous people she's worked with, including Gene Hackman and Stanley Kubrick, and the insults she called them, telling Vance that he now joined a long list of respected Hollywood people that she had insulted. Hmm. Mangold said the tensions had gone away after that and they worked
2: together well. Maybe this adds a little something to their on-screen relationship. <laughs> yeah. She's very brassy. She's a brassy yeah. old broad and I think it's
1: funny that she would just get in the face of like Kubrick or Hackman and put them in their place. Like that's who <laughs> yeah. she was like in her career if you're familiar with her work and you, I think you had to be that tough to start in the 1940s and go all the oh, way through yeah. the 90s and hang out with all these gruff actor types. Dolly has a bit of an adversarial relationship with Dolores played by Debbie Harry who is a cynical longtime employee at Pete and Dolly's. In a move designed to seemingly spite Dolores, Dolly hires a new waitress, Callie, played by Liv Tyler, a soft spoken angel faced girl next door type. I'm reading my own notes laughing. <laughs> all right relax well yeah
2: seems like the type of girl that would star in rock music videos (laughs) she's recently dropped out of college in syracuse this all turns the little
1: world at pete and dolly's roadside restaurant upside down just the introduction of cali who the
2: fuck is this well it just leads to so much
1: (laughs) obviously victor gets sent into a tizzy and then it seems to really rub Dolores the wrong way. Yeah. And once more is revealed about the relationship between Dolly and Dolores, you do start to think this was all some big thing to get
2: at her. This is the brilliance and beauty of storytelling like this. So you just know who these people are. You know the reasons they react to this stuff. Someone from out of this world coming in, and you understand everyone's perspective to it.
1: Well, yeah, and I also think that Once you know a little bit more about each of the characters, you understand that there's probably been this long-standing rivalry between Dolly and Dolores. But Dolores doesn't quit because she probably couldn't get another job. Dolly doesn't fire her because she doesn't really want to bring in new people, necessarily. Leo might stop coming in. He's a pretty big customer. He
2: pays the electric bill.
1: There's a comfort in familiarity. They can't rock the boat too much, but they're going to take jabs at each other. You find out later who wrote Slut on the mirror in the bathroom. Yeah, It's so perfect that it's set up early in the film. And then later in the film, like 15, 20 minutes later, Dolly is mad at Dolores because she's like, someone wrote Slut on the mirror and they're talking about you. And then later you find out it was Dolores. (laughs) But like, the genius is not just that, it's the way that, the story unfolds in a way that makes you understand that this has just been going on for 15 years.
2: I know. What a life. Because
1: of what happened between Dolores and Pete, mm-hmm. Dolly's husband. That's everything. That's like how the relationship is between Victor and his mother. Yeah. You don't understand it all at first, but then over the course of the movie, you're like, oh, I get why he kind of is the way he is. She wasn't yeah. abusive right. in, in any way. Like, she, she, it's not like she yelled at him or was mean to him, but she smothered him. She didn't accept that he was overweight and mm-hmm. she sort of wrapped her grief around him and made like a tree, you know, when a tree grows over something and then it's yeah. just part of the trunk, like it grows over some weird metal thing or, you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. she, her trunk grew over him and he couldn't escape from that life <laughs> yeah. anymore I know because he wasn't strong enough.
2: It is only this type of ecosystem where these two women stay in this situation.
1: Because it's all they know. Right. And in a weird way, they probably love each other, but not in a way they would ever express. Yeah, yeah. And not in a way they even understand.
2: Yeah, kind of like our relationship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. I already have a list of replacements written down
2: <laughs> for when the time's wrote, right. <laughs> slut on your bathroom
1: window. <laughs> While Dolores sees the hiring of Callie as a personal slight and thus treats her coldly, Victor is immediately intrigued by this new young woman. Victor is painfully shy, rarely seems to speak, and is, as I put it, slightly overweight. Because I refuse to just commit to the fact that he's some giant monster.
2: I was telling you before we recorded, when I was watching this movie, and Victor has this big moment. But I did have like a brief second there where I'm like, is this the first time that he's talked? Because <laughs> It's it like is- an, a- an hour and ten minutes into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Wait a minute. It, he is so soft-spoken, but not a lot of dialogue from him.
1: Yeah, frustratingly so. Yeah. You want him to just answer people, because they will ask him things, and he just doesn't even say anything for the longest time, and
2: it's sort of... It is sort of like me. ...building attention, where you're like, oh my God. (laughs) Matt, just say something.
1: (laughs) The age difference in real life is also one of those things that you should probably point out. I think that Liv Tyler was younger than she's playing in this movie, I'm pretty sure, Just by basic math, they say they filmed this in 1993. She was born in 1977. I was like, well, wait a minute. She wouldn't have even been old enough to be in college, let alone a college dropout. I'm Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck are they talking about? And then you have this fucking 30-something-year-old guy. You're like, okay. He's 17 years older than her, and she is sort of underage. So, yes, there is a creepy element to it if you're going by real-life ages, but... Again, it was a different time, and I think that the fact that he's playing a childlike, inexperienced yeah. person doesn't make it okay, but she's supposed to be older. I don't know. Well, It's not like anything happens anyway. Spoiler
2: alert. That's the thing. You're not surprised that he would have an infatuation with her, but the surprising part is that there's even a hint that she would be remotely interested in any way.
1: <laughs> I guess it's debatable if she is or not. Yeah, yeah. I guess she probably isn't, but...
2: There's a few scenes where you're like what the fuck? There's a moment or two.
1: Yeah, where she's looking at those pictures. Yeah. And she's holding them in that way. I'm like, "Wait, what is she doing right I now?" I know. I'm Shut like it screaming. off. Screaming. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what? Callie has a boyfriend, as I mentioned, Evan Dando. They're making out constantly, which is a private source of town. pain for Victor. Yeah, yeah he's just <laughs> driving around in his car seeing them make Can't out everywhere. Can't escape it. And then we find out pretty early through the dialogue that 15 years ago, Dolores had an affair with Pete, Victor's father slash Dolly's husband.
2: That had to be the talk of the town. Doesn't seem like there's much of a town. No. (laughs) (laughs) The talk of the bar for sure.
1: It wouldn't surprise me if there was a a glory days of Pete and Dolly's, where it was like a real happening place all the time.
2: Free jukebox night.
1: Because the nights that we see, I think there's one night. Out of all the nights that it's actually busy. It's when that baseball team of kids is in there. Right. I think all of the other times it's pretty much dead, isn't Mm -hmm.
2: it? Yeah. They get one big night a month. (laughs) Just enough to stay open. Yeah. Just to keep the lights on.
1: During work, Callie ignores Victor's shyness and plows right ahead in trying to get to know him better. Look, she's effortlessly cute and likable. Super kind and sweet. She has this... Effervescence is maybe the word you would use. Okay. She floats through the world, which irks the shit out of Dolores, but of course is intriguing to Victor. But she doesn't seem to be the type of person to ever be mean to anyone. Yep. So for a guy like Victor, who probably can sense any kind of judgment, even if you never say anything, you can see it in their eyes. I know. And the fact that he doesn't see it in her eyes. And the fact that she's beautiful and nice and he's she's always around,
2: he's hooked. <laughs> Dolores is used to all eyes being on her in this place.
1: Oh, yeah. Her jealousy over Callie, I think, is also another part where you just sort of have to figure that out. They yeah, never yeah. really spell it out, but she was something in her day. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she's a little older now. Still looking good, though, I think. <laughs> I mean, come on. No, I would agree with that, but yeah. Callie is so young and fresh faced and everything certainly catching victor's eye yeah and i think there's jealousy over that too i think so too the story picks up at a time where you never know did victor ever look at her i don't
2: know i'm thinking so i don't know though yeah he's weird it's hard
1: to tell like what he thinks impressed by victor's cooking skills callie suggests he attend the nearby culinary institute of america an idea that is considered by victor but swiftly dismissed by both Dolly and Dolores. They shit right all over that
2: idea. You are, like, <laughs> scratching your head a little bit, though. I don't know. He makes, like, pizza in a bar? Yeah, I'm mm-hmm.
1: not really sure where she's coming up with this thing that he's such a great cook that he yeah. could be in the Culinary Institute. I, I, I don't know.
2: we will say, upstate New York does do food that's horrible for you very well.
1: I guess it's just that he shows an interest in it, and I think yeah. Callie being recognizes that... He doesn't have a lot going yeah, yeah. on. So he's like, oh, this is something you like, and it is good. I like your food. Why don't right. you do this? You know, she's just being folksy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Giving a little push.
1: Dolly, of course, read between the lines, as yeah. I've been saying. No. She can't have <laughs> no. Victor leave. Her husband's dead. Yeah, yeah. She'll be alone. And Dolores, I just think, is a bitch. Right. <laughs> End of story. I think that's just why she shit on yeah, it. Yeah, you I feel don't like know.
2: Dolores had some plans, and it just didn't quite work out for her. Now she can barely... Get her car to get her to work. I know.
1: And so it doesn't take much. Victor quickly becomes enamored of Callie because he was once invisible, but now there's something new, and that now he's becoming visible, and there's a quest to live and be yeah. somebody.
2: One does have to question, though, was it all worth it? Was it not better staying invisible?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're taking a con approach yeah. to living your life. It would be easier just living with Mom... Making
2: food until she dies and then you die. Well, I just wouldn't want to get wrapped into this whole Cali thing just to have it. Well, it's inappropriate. Know. She's <laughs> she's yeah,
1: too young. I know. Even if she's supposed to be eighteen, it, exactly, it's ridiculous. Right. But I guess in a way, he needs something to help pull him out of his shell. So okay, she likes to take pictures of everybody. He's looking at her pictures. He steals that picture of her.
2: Mm-hmm. Like a oh, bully. No, no, it's no, not good. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> You would think Victor would be on some sort of a watch list.
1: Yeah, the reality of this character, and not the fairy tale version in a movie, is that he's going to take that picture and put it on a sock, and <laughs> let nature take its course. Oh my <laughs> God. Well, I know, I know. That's r- really what you're doing with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! One of the things I wrote down. <laughs> I just wrote down peak unhappiness levels. <laughs> i think i was implying that to
2: everyone in the movie i know because everyone is sad i know but there was something still i mean look i don't i don't aspire to be victor but there was something that i'm just like man this life seems like so chill
1: <laughs> well yeah it is yeah and if you could meet a nice girl like maybe a certain someone who works at a grocery store that we're gonna yeah. talk about later that's right She'd be okay with you just being a pizza cook and she works at the grocery store and you just go home you and you a have a nice together. quiet yeah. life. You watch black and white, I love Lucy on the TV or something, and That's then right. you go to bed.
2: Nick at night. But I was thinking
1: about the part where Leo who's always around and one night he sleeps over at fucking Dolly and Victor's house and then another night he's getting a ride from Dolores and uh-huh. it seems like
2: He's the new
1: <laughs> him and Dolores have like an on again, off again thing or some bullshit. He gets in the car with Dolores at one point, and he asks her what Pete was like, and Dolores says something like, he was very sad, he was a sad man, and I'm like, compared to what? I know! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait a minute, he was sadder than everyone so else So what
0: in are you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, shit. Yep. Yes, Darlene works at the small... Supermarket, which is really more of like a convenience store. It's like where I do my grocery shopping. <laughs> I refuse to go to grocery
2: stores now. I am with you, though. Grocery stores
1: suck. It's just too much. I know. I'll pay more to go to Rite Aid than I will to go to like a grocery store.
2: Yeah. Some of my biggest fears are being stuck in a grocery store line. Oh, yeah. It's just the worst. Well, you got
1: to go out the hours where there's no one there. Yeah. Darlene recommends... Not to be a bitch. She's not even talking about Victor and his Mm -hmm. physique or anything. But she just mentions that she was drinking these diet shakes. Because I think she's drinking it when he's in line. And she just points at it and says, I lost eight pounds on that thing. So this sort of plants a little bit of a seed with Victor. He's thinking, of course, Callie's never going to want to be with a guy like me. So I have to change. And I don't think the movie does a fantastic job. at really displaying that he's really trying that hard to change he steps on the scale a few times he drinks some diet shakes
2: i was saying to you it's more like he's monitoring where he's at which kind of stays the same
1: but one of the weirdest scenes of the whole movie and it it sparks sort of a recurring thing that happens is when he's walking back from that store and he has this fantasy of rescuing callie he looks over the side of the bridge and he sees her floating in the water yeah She seems dead. But she's floating as if she's alive. It's very weird. So then he goes down and he pulls her out of the water. And yeah, her lips are blue. And he gives her like mouth to mouth and she wakes up.
2: It doesn't seem like the most professionally trained mouth to mouth you've ever seen. No, he
1: doesn't even push on her chest. He's just breathing into her mouth. Which is
2: kind of actually disturbing.
1: (laughs) Even as it's happening. Uh Uh-huh. The first time you see this movie, there's no way you think this is real, because you're like, what the fuck is going on now? <laughs> and then it isn't real. And I realize, because I had memories of myself in like, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like middle school, of having a fantasy of rescuing a girl that you like mm. in your head. And the sad thing is, by girl I like, I mean like Jennifer Love Hewitt, like <laughs> somebody I would have like a fantasy of rescuing or yeah. something. <laughs>
2: I never had that fantasy. Not like
1: from drowning, but yeah. like whatever. You come up with these insane, uh-huh. weird fantasies in your head. This is a very childlike thing to yeah. do that he's
2: doing. That's true.
1: Because he's coming up with a way yeah, to have it yeah. in
2: with her because she'll be so grateful. Right. It's really sad in a way. I don't think being heroic was ever in the cards for me, even in a <laughs> fantasy version. <laughs> your fantasy is
1: that her father... Hits you with his car and then offers his daughter as a bride. (laughs) Like a transaction.
2: (laughs) That's your fantasy. I don't know. My fantasy was, how can I get away from this situation? (laughs) My fantasy would be like, she comes over to my house and knocks on my door and I pretend like I'm asleep.
1: (laughs) You answer the door and then pretend like you're asleep. Just falling away from the door. (laughs) Mine was three guys are mugging Jennifer Love Hewitt and I fight them off or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. But then now after this moment, this is something that I didn't even pick up on until the like one of the last fantasies that he has. She's always wearing this dress and it's always wet and her hair is always wet. So like yes. anytime he fantasizes about her from now to the rest of the movie, it's like a continuation of this. It's like she just fell in the water. And I was wondering what the significance of that was. Why make that choice? Because the other fantasies don't take place by the little right. water or whatever. I guess it, I wouldn't even call that a river. It was like a stream she was in or something.
2: That becomes the fantasy image of her. I
1: guess, but I was wondering if it was all supposed to be like a continuation of she is rescued by him and now she's just like a part of his life mm. because of that. And not as if it's necessarily all in one day, but it's all part of the a continuation. Same I don't know. Dolly suffers a heart attack and is hospitalized. Victor does not mention this to Dolores or Callie or anyone. Weird move. Instead, choosing to keep it all to himself. He fantasizes about Callie more often and then discovers it was his own mother who wrote Slut on the bathroom mirror at the restaurant before she got angry at Dolores over her reputation, quote unquote. (laughs) Just an insane thing to do. It really sparks your imagination as to what these past fifteen years have been like. The little games going on here. It's all a combination of a lot of things with Victor. There's this inability to express himself at all. He can't really talk. Mm. He can talk but Familiar. Yeah.
2: It's like I'm doing a podcast with Victor. Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Except he'd probably be more interested.
2: (laughs) I could definitely see a scenario where you're dead and I just don't tell anyone. (laughs)
1: Well, I would prefer that, actually. (laughs) Victor's retreating more and more into secrecy and privacy, and then eventually we do sort of get it. He does provide an explanation, at least to the viewers. No one else can hear it, because at that point Callie has run away from him. But Mm -hmm. there is a reason why he's doing this, and the reasoning is beyond sad, really. I know. But when he's in the hospital, in the cafeteria, which is also a bizarre part, which feels kind of not real because he's standing there waiting for the woman reading the book at the cafeteria to pay attention so he can ask her for food and then you have fucking jerry horn
2: i know david patrick, david kelly. patrick
1: kelly who most people would know as being the guy that says warriors come out yep. to play or whatever. Lindsay
2: spotted him immediately and she was kind of like this sort of reminds me of twin peaks and then he showed up <laughs> it doesn't really feel like twin peaks with all the shit, but th- I think the small town. Yeah. It's
1: a little more of a, I would, I don't know if you would say mountainous, but like, yeah. Th- there's some forest, hills. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, definitely the forest. Yeah. So, yeah, this guy starts talking to him, and you're not really sure if this is real either, because the woman at the cafeteria behind the counter does not ever look up from the book, does not care, <laughs> which is what he t- keeps telling him. Like, yes. go ahead, take whatever you want. She doesn't care. And then he's asking about like Thurman Munson and the whole thing. That's right. And all this different yeah. stuff. But then he starts saying, you're big, but nobody sees you, which is a, a little on the nose. I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Like, yeah, that's the whole point. Right. But, and then he's like, I'm loud and no one hears me until I start whispering. I was kind of confused by this scene, really, because it did seem like it was just explaining it to the audience a little bit in a way that was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hate the scene itself just because... I've always found David Patrick Kelly to be sort of an entertaining performer. Yeah. So it's
2: sort of a fun, weird moment. He always makes his moment. presence known. I will say, there's not a ton of analytical videos out there on YouTube about this movie.
1: Or any videos at all yeah, I took about a, it. Yeah,
2: I took a look. Sometimes I'll listen to stuff when I'm on my way over to record, and there's just not a lot out there. I would have been interested to hear thoughts about this scene.
1: Yeah, because then, isn't he the guy that's getting rushed to the emergency room moments later. I think so. As if he shouldn't be eating what he's eating. Right. Or something like he's doing it on purpose. He's in the cafeteria eating shit, but we don't really know what's wrong with him exactly, and then all of a sudden he's being rushed to the emergency room. There's definitely a
2: weirdness there.
1: While Victor is down there in the hospital cafeteria, Dolly dies. I think it's unique in the sense of how little ceremony or anything there is to it and it's all very tragic because their last moments together are in this horrible hospital room with the fucking curtain open and the nurses the women are telling some story about going out of the morgue and they're laughing and they're trying to have this emotional connection and there's just the sounds of the hospital around them it's not even that private of a room i know
2: you're like did she die
1: well yeah because he just goes back to the room and she's gone and it's like they didn't know he was there I know. That's how little of a presence he has. Because usually, either they know you're not there and they're calling the house, or they know you're there and they will tell you. But it's almost like, oh, well, we called the house and he didn't answer, so whatever. Because let's face it, I doubt they had great insurance or anything like that, so move them out. And it is cold and hard. And Victor's grief, though enormous and all-consuming, Remains private, as Victor does not tell anyone of his mother's death. He runs the restaurant as usual, deals with his grief by binge eating, and tells Dolores and Callie that Dolly is having minor surgery, which takes forever for him to even provide any explanation, it seems like. I will say that the passage of time in this movie is hard to gauge sometimes. Yeah. You assume that Pete and Dolly's is closed probably at least once or twice a week because A... They don't really have the clientele to keep it open every day. And B, if he's the cook all the time, they have to have some days off.
2: I know. I don't know if it's one day or two. I know. this is a, It's a tough life because there's not a ton of staff. No. There's only two waitresses, and
1: they both seem to work at the same time. <laughs> so they must just be open from, like, 5 p.m., to midnight or something yeah. like Monday through there's one Saturday shift or yeah. Tuesday through Saturday or something like that. Right. Cause they only have enough staff for one shift really. Yeah. But so much for dieting as yeah.
2: now you can see. You understand this. What
1: the issues are. And his mother, while she was alive did sort of give us some clues. They had the confrontation over his weight at one point shortly before she dies. And then part of that, is a little bit of a revelation where she says, after Pete died, you grew so much, you got so so much bigger that it was like I had him back or something. Mm. And you can kind of get a lot out of that. Like, what does that mean? And Filling a void. Yeah, he became a crutch for her. And since he's not a strong person, that just became his life.
2: Yeah, and he was never able to really go off on his own.
1: A couple of things happen. He notices a pregnancy test in Callie's bag. I will say that her boyfriend, I think his name's Jeff in the movie. Hateable. Yeah, he's the worst. Mm-hmm. I did think it was hilarious when he was playing that song. And yes, it is Evan Dando from The Lemonhead, so he's a good singer and a good guitar player and everything, right. but he's like, you're not even paying attention. Yeah, well. <laughs> and she says, I've heard that song like 10 times tonight, and he's like, this is only the third time. <laughs> imagine making your girl listen to a song for the third oh, time it's
2: like jesus christ i don't play much anymore but if i do it's like an immediate eye roll from Lindsay. like <laughs> can you go in another room please all right i agree with her on that one like, good <laughs> lord imagine trying to
1: be like in a band with you or playing Tough. songs with you horrible <laughs> Just the endless notes, like endless noodling. <laughs> like you're fucking Yangwei Melmstein over here <laughs> rather than just doing a just
2: simple song. A nonstop solo machine.
1: <laughs> you and Evan Dando from the Lemonheads. Yeah.
2: They have a fun little group of friends. I'm surprised there's not a little bit more conversation. We got to get out of this town. Well, that's the thing with her. That's <laughs> yeah.
1: where she's having a crisis. Right. At a certain point, if you're not in the Lemonheads. <laughs> yeah. And you start getting older and nothing's happening. Like, the music thing's not happening. And she was in school. Like, she went to Syracuse. And then for whatever reason, which they don't really get into, she dropped out. I kind of got the sense that maybe she was pressured into it by her boyfriend. She doesn't seem super happy in this relationship. Which I think Victor also picks up on, which makes it worse in a way. Yeah. Because if she was super happy and she was dating a great guy... It would burn you up but you'd get over it because you kind of be like well what well, am i gonna do whatever. i can't be better than this right <laughs> how many pizzas can i make for her <laughs> but when you see that she's not super thrilled and she might want to break up with this guy and he's a dick you're kind of like eh. and then you start thinking like can i i'm just looking at it from my perspective i know he's like in his thirties and it's not really cool. Right. You know what I mean? Like you just start thinking she should not be with this guy and blah, blah, blah. blah, And it, it just doesn't help that she's with someone she's not that into. And then I guess
2: the one thing you have going is there's not a ton of other options. It seems
1: that's her whole thing. Like she has as much struggle in a way, not maybe as much, but she has her own struggle in the film too. She kind of has that panic that comes on in late youth. Right. Now, it's very strange when you actually consider she's maybe supposed to be 18, and then in real life she's like 16. But you kind of get that thing where you're like, whatever I thought was going to happen with my life isn't happening. In truth, you have so much more time. But you don't really realize that when you start to have those moments of panic. You start thinking, whatever's supposed to happen isn't happening. I'm going to be stuck here forever. I'm not happy with my boyfriend. My friends are nice, but they're losers too. What am I doing? What am I, I doing? And she starts to go through that throughout the film. That's where she becomes emotionally vulnerable. And if it was someone other than Victor, you would say, like, maybe Uh-oh. they're taking maybe advantage Maybe this is the moment. It. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was saying that was, like, a bad thing. You're like, no, this is your end. <laughs> oh, she's sad. I'm going to try to kiss her.
2: <laughs> well, luckily for all of us, that's not in Victor.
1: No, I just meant that Victor is almost absolved from guilt mm-hmm. because he just doesn't really understand anything. Right? He's so inexperienced with everything that it's all a mystery and it's all new to him. And social cues and social norms don't really apply because he doesn't know anything. He's ill-equipped to be an adult, and you do wonder about things like it, bills, payroll. Now that his how mother how can is he gone, live in this world? Yeah, does he know how to do everything? Obviously, can drive, and, running
2: a business too.
1: You don't know. You don't know what he can and Doesn't can't do. Doesn't it feel do.
2: like this would all overwhelm him at some point? Well, don't I mean, you think
1: that's part of it? Yeah. He's in denial a little bit about what's going on.
2: How quick before Dolores is just calling the shots?
1: Yeah. Well, he probably would want that. Yeah. In a way. Because he might be-
2: All right, Dolores, you're in charge Not now. able to do so. Yeah.
1: But there's continued tension between Dolores and Callie, too, that keeps building. I know. Dolores is suspicious about Dolly's extended absence- and then pulls a very strange move when she asks Victor for a ride home from the restaurant. She has him pull over next to an airfield and starts making sexual advances towards him, which he
2: ultimately rejects. A couple things of note here. One, something that happens in movies that I think would never be fun, parking outside of an airfield. (laughs) Seems like it shows up in countless movies. I don't really see the appeal. It must be
1: something like people in small towns do. I don't know. I never really have lived close to an airfield, so I don't really know. I don't Can't know.
2: imagine doing it. Two, cannot believe Victor's not at least a little bit interested here. I don't know if it, he's just well, well He's know. saving himself for yeah, someone special. That's
0: right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I don't know. I wasn't sure either
1: what to make of... Well, I know why she's doing it, because she's so insecure and fucking crazy. He needs to stick it to Callie. Well, she's jealous. She's right. just jealous of yeah. Callie. The
2: attention of Leo isn't cutting it anymore. No, no. She needs to be the most desired person in that bar.
1: Yeah, because it's not just Victor, which is another thing I think you have to do a little bit of your own work with. You have to assume that before Callie came along, all the truckers and fucking guys that are coming through there have eyes for Dolores. And then Mm. all of a sudden, they're not looking her way anymore. She
2: ain't number one anymore. And so she's
1: noticed that Victor has a thing for Callie. Because... He's not so obvious that Callie would get it, but I think Dolores would pick up on it because Dolores knows him better and knows that he's changed and what he's doing and the way he looks at Callie and the little subtle differences here and there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she's doing this thing. I was thinking, like, oh, she's going for that rare father-son combo pack, which, coincidentally, most of my girlfriends had a father-son combo pack, but oh. I'm not going to comment on that. Okay. <laughs> Not necessarily my dad. I just don't want to talk about it. Sure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm
1: joking, of course. Fueled by jealousy over Victor's infatuation with Callie? I would say yes. Is uh, that what's yeah. m- motivating this? Probably. Right? It has to be. A few times throughout the movie, Victor drives past the Culinary Institute and then eventually he actually goes in and walks around with like a tour group and he really takes it in. And I, I think it's interesting because. You have to remember that this is in close proximity to him all the time. Mm -hmm. However, it never really became a thing in his head until Callie said it. So even though there is a certain impropriety to him lusting after a teenager at his age, which seems probably even older than it is because he just looks horrible with that hair. (laughs) There is a positive, which is like she literally is pulling him out of who he was, that right pit that he was living in the pit of despair. making
2: it seem like there's a p- potential for a life for him
1: right because it doesn't always have to boil down to them being in a relationship or, to, or even just something as crass as like a sexual thing it's just like she literally is a lighthouse in a sea of disappointment and sadness
2: <laughs> i know i wish
1: i could find one of those <laughs> i've been looking yeah i don't think they exist outside of <laughs>
0: movies <laughs>
1: Eventually, Callie's boyfriend, Jeff, shows up at Pete and Dolly's and makes a scene because they're fighting a lot more now because she's unhappy. Right. She seems generally unhappy with her whole life, but also he's a dick.
2: Yeah, it kind of seems like a house of cards situation here where this is all going to come tumbling down at some point. Well, yeah, I
1: think for her to have a brighter future at some point, she's going to have to realize that she's got to get rid of him. She's going
2: to
0: or she's going to head for the edge of town by him.
2: It's going to be a Springsteen song.
1: This prompts a snarky comment from Dolores, which then makes Callie explode in anger in Mm. front of the customers, saying, fuck you, a bunch of times.
2: Do these people really care that much? I feel like in this type of town. Well, Leo does.
1: Wow, yeah. But it's weird, because I think, in retrospect, you would expect this incident to be a much bigger deal than it is. It seems relatively minor for how much it spirals into all kinds of other shit because this basically leads to everything victor comforts callie in his own quiet way Uh handing her a tissue kind of being there for her a presence which is bold for him because he really doesn't do anything ever so he's actually at least doing something and then in his own unique way threatens to fire dolores If she doesn't start being nicer to Callie, he even (laughs) says, You don't even have to be nice. Just Just be be nicer. nicer. And he speaks very slow and soft. And she actually reaches up to like touch his arm in sort of a familiar sexual way and he like yanks it away. So she's still trying something. Yeah. It's like, Jesus Christ.
2: Well, I don't know. He's firm in his
1: position. Dolores then presumably runs to tell Leo some version of her interaction with Vic. Conveniently leaving out the part where she came onto him the previous night and then again vaguely in the kitchen. And so Leo bullies and assaults Victor outside in the parking lot for not taking Dolores' side. That just felt so bizarre. The ball's on this fucking dude. It's almost like, in a way, Dolores and Leo sense that Dolly's never coming back, even though they don't know that yet. Because I just feel like if dolly got wind of this maybe they just think victor wouldn't say anything because he doesn't say anything but like if dolly got wind of this i think leo would be banned i would think then what is he gonna do
2: <laughs> also he's got nothing else going on i will say it would be a huge cut
1: to the revenue he's a guy that would never survive in the 2023 i mean his whole yeah. job was like developing film and then stealing nudes out of that <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like what a life Some this guy, guy
1: it's like, how long was he doing that job? Some of those nudes he was showing Victor looked like they were from, like, the 50s. I know. Like, oh, my God.
2: I feel like they had to be cutting him, like, quite a deal. I think he was getting a lot of drinks for free.
1: Well, Dolores might have been slipping him yeah. some drinks, but I don't know. At the same time, they probably needed his money. True. Meanwhile, since Callie's douche boyfriend has pissed at her now, she's left stranded at Pete and Dolly's, so she asked Victor for a ride home. In what could only be described as another bold move. Victor takes her to that same airfield he was at with Dolores. This is
2: the only move he knows now. Now he knows a move,
1: so that they can watch these airplanes descend. At first, Callie is very pleased by this. She's actually like freaking out. I, I can't
2: believe she's never done this.
1: How does she not know this is a thing? They don't have much going on in this town. It's a small have a list of
2: activities that one can do.
1: It's like the town in the hot spot. There's yeah. two things to do in this town. If you ain't got a TV, <laughs> then you just got one. But then she becomes emotional over her lack of direction in life, and she and Victor, in a shocking moment, do briefly kiss, but Callie quickly puts an end
2: Unbelievable
1: to the encounter. Not in like yeah. a awkward way either. It's just sort of like, okay, well, it's time to go home now. It's not like stop, stop stop, or or anything because it's not even like a makeout.
2: No, it's a brief moment of intimacy that, I don't know, there's an innocence and sweetness to it but it definitely still feels wrong.
1: (laughs) Because of the age difference or what? Because of Victor. You get the sense that she does actually like him and care about him but not in that way. Right. Obviously. I think she is genuine. She's a sweet person, I think. She ends up feeling very betrayed
2: victor it's like an atari situation i want us to be something that will probably never be yeah there, there you go let's yeah. throw
1: those references out now <laughs> but at the same time if she's panicked over her own life imagine what she must think of victor's life
2: yeah i don't think this is the future she's envisioning for herself
1: she's still basically a child he's yeah, like yeah. middle aged right like what the fuck is going on with him what because he can cook a pizza good look it's
2: not happening.
1: Well, I don't know. She's probably just so fucking sick of hearing that acoustic guitar. No kidding. Like, oh my God. You know
2: what? Victor doesn't seem so bad.
1: (laughs) At least he doesn't talk. (laughs) Is it weird that when Victor has visions of Callie in his home or bed or his life, it's always that drowned version? I think we covered this. It is weird. Yeah. Because you can
2: misinterpret
1: it easily. I don't think it's in any conceivable way sinister
2: the fantasy version of her is the one that the dead version of her, almost yeah
1: i think the we were saying before it's like a continuation of the rescue fantasy Mm -hmm. is valid but there's a ghost like quality to it because she doesn't talk in the visions and she looks weird yeah that is all wet it's a little unsettling like Mm -hmm. she's dead or something i don't know i don't think that's what they were going for but it's strange agree in the morning, Callie shows up at Victor's house asking him to take her to visit Dolly in the hospital. Uh-oh. I was freaking out at this point. because She started
2: asking questions
1: that were none of her business? Well, first of all, before we even get to the fucking scene that he pulls here, uh huh. she comes into the house. So one thing that's been going on is that Victor has never changed the house from when his mother collapsed. The breakfast that she was eating is still sitting there. Disgusting. Weeks have gone by now. Oof. She looks at that and is a little confused, but she's not a judgmental person, I guess, so she kind of lets that go. Mm -hmm. Then you notice he's put the picture he stole of her on the refrigerator, and now she's standing next to the refrigerator. The
2: red flags are piling up. I'm,
1: like, punching the fucking couch going, (laughs) oh, my God. what the fuck? But- for someone who rarely talks, he was able to think pretty quickly on his feet and she bought it, I guess, where he says, I found that behind the booth or whatever. And she's like, Oh, okay. Although <laughs> she's probably thinking, well, he's obsessed with me. Of course he is. Everyone who's ever met me is obsessed with me. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that actually is probably more reasonable. <laughs> like it's not a big deal to people that look like Liv Tyler. Like, yeah, okay, well, this yeah, guy's of obsessed course. with yeah. me. Of Everyone has
2: he a is. picture of me. Yeah,
1: why wouldn't he? Yeah <laughs> it'd be weird if he didn't. <laughs> right. And then I start screaming, Vic, it's not too late. You could tell her now that she's dead. You could just tell her now to say she just died. She'll be there to comfort you. Don't do this. <laughs> don't do what you're going to do. It's such a bad idea. It's like George when he convinces Susan's parents that he has a place in the Hampton. But they don't really believe him. And then it becomes a, becomes a game of chicken. Except Callie's actually more innocent because at least in that episode of Seinfeld, Susan's parents yeah. actually knew that he didn't have a place in the Hamptons.
2: That's the thing. Callie is completely oblivious to this. You could still just come clean right now, and it it wouldn't be like that weird. There's a conceivable way of being like, "All right, look, my mom <laughs> passed away. I just didn't want to." Maybe don't start it with "All right, look." <laughs> Listen,
1: <laughs> I made a mistake. Yeah. I've been living a lie. Yeah,
2: but boy, he's at a fork in the road moment, and. He doesn't take Yeah, because what ends ends up
1: happening, it it almost feels like he's pulling a prank on her. I know. Like, I think she understands that he's emotionally stunted or something, and so he doesn't quite understand that this is not cool. And I think she gets that eventually. Right. It is such a fucking weird thing to do. All right, anyway. (laughs) One of the things that goes on throughout the movie is he's constantly listening to, like, this horrible talk radio. Oh, that's right. And she turns on his radio, and it's, like, something about some guy complaining about gay people or something and she's like what the fuck is this she's like let me turn it and he's like yeah and she puts on some rock and roll song being all cute singing along to the radio i was like they should have
2: made it an aerosmith song <laughs> and she's like this is my dad.
1: victor brings callie to the cemetery and she is not getting it like she is confused up until the final moment somehow
2: well, you're not expecting this to be the case. Yeah, maybe she's thinking,
1: okay, he's going to take me to his father's grave first or something. I don't know why he's doing this. Like, she's really not getting it. And he shows her Dolly's fresh grave. There's no headstone yet. It's literally just dirt.
2: A sad scene.
1: Yeah. It's not a great location. There's like a busy overpass above the cemetery. But even just but- the fact
2: that it's freshly dirt, like I said, no headstone. I know, it's such a rough... Not even clear that there's going to be a headstone. It's so jarring. Yeah.
1: And like I said, she's completely not expecting this. Even up until the point where they're walking through a cemetery, she's still not (laughs) getting it. And she freaks out, because at this point, he confesses that Dolly's been gone for two weeks. And that's what I mean about the passage of time. It doesn't feel like two weeks have gone by, but he's been keeping this up for a while. And she fucking loses it and storms away. And this is the moment, this is like one of those sad fucking moments with him where he quietly ends up just saying to himself, because she's too far away now, he says, I didn't want anything to change. And you're like, oof, brutal.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, Victor, but it's going to.
1: Later that night, Callie fails to show up for her restaurant shift, which I guess sort of pleases Dolores.
2: Back in the spotlight.
1: Leo and Dolores learn of dolly's death through the rumor mill via a hospital employee via someone related to them who calls the restaurant and mentions it i was thinking hello hipaa violation
2: how did this not happen before <laughs>
1: nurses just giving out information about patients yeah i know you'd think someone would have come through and been like oh i heard dolly's Dolly dead Best. <laughs> yeah. the town not that broken up about it <laughs> evidently <laughs> yeah really No one cared about Pete and Dolly's. This place really could use a
2: rebranding now, Well, the
1: town is so small that I think the hospital was far away. Oh, yeah. I think the hospital was in a different town or something. A hike.
2: Okay. That makes sense. So there probably wasn't a ton of
1: crossover. They're confused and annoyed with Victor for not telling them, and then they end up leaving together. I was thinking that as fucked up as Dolores might think it is and as weird as the whole situation has become... She's gotta be panicking too. And I think that's sort of evident in that last moment, sort of like that Donnie Darko moment at the end of the movie where they're panning across what everyone's doing in that morning and she's just sitting there. Uh huh. I think she's kinda like, What the fuck am I gonna do now? Yeah, that's right. She's well into her forties and she's been working at this place for like forever. Seems like her life is barely hanging on. Like, where are you gonna get a job? How long are the lights gonna
2: stay on at this place?
1: What, her house or at the The restaurant? The restaurant. Victor, all alone, in the bar, in his dead parents' bar, more specifically, finally releases some of that grief and rage, smashing a bunch of shit. And this is it. He gives into it. He's swallowed by his grief. First his father via his mother, and now his mother. And there's really an inability to fully process what's happening. And I think that the way that his mother was and the way that his life played out is a big part of that. His mother took his life as her own. And so... Now he's left alone and he literally doesn't know what to do. You know what I mean? Like he's so ill-equipped for the world. Not just the complicated shit like paying bills. That's two steps above where he is. (laughs) Talking to someone at a store. Right. How do I talk to people?
2: I know. You end up
1: becoming a hermit in the woods or something.
2: I think about like. Hopefully
1: the house is paid for.
2: The stuff that it probably took me too long in life to be able to do.
1: I think about the stuff I still am not able to Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Again, go to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: used to be able to go, but the the overwhelming anxiety of being in right. public. Yeah. Later that same night, Callie arrives to tell Victor she's quitting and to collect her final paycheck. This makes it seem colder than it is. It's not like she's showing up and being like, I quit, I want my money. But that's sort of how her boyfriend is. and uh-huh. She's like, Jeff wait outside get the fuck out he's making it so awkward because clearly there's a scene that's gone on here there's glass all over the floor victor's sitting at a booth not saying anything when they're trying to find him and then his hand is bleeding and shit there's a lot of tears and she tells victor that he's a wonderful guy and a great guy although she does say that he needs help at one point she also tells him that she's planning on going back to college And the moment almost entirely passes before Victor is able to speak. But he manages to ask her to come by and visit sometime. And she says that she will. And then right as she's getting into her car, he opens up the fucking door. And he's like, well, you didn't give any two weeks notice. So good luck getting a referral from me, bitch. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) You think you're getting a reference? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You just wasted your whole time here. Now he's talking. <laughs> of course, that's a joke. That's not real. Yep. The final scenes do offer a little bit of hope for Victor. He's finally starting to emerge from his grief over Dolly's death. That last breakfast has still been sitting there, and for a horrifying moment, he almost starts to eat it. And Yikes. that's, I think, when he finally is like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah, really. And the dog, her little dog, licks his hand, and he's kind of like, okay.
2: I can do something.
1: And he starts to clean the house, he starts to come out of it, and then he goes back to that grocery store, which is a, a compliment to even call it a grocery I, store. It looks like a gas station. Yeah, it's like a 7-Eleven, right. basically. But it's probably like their grocery store. It's just a little store that has milk and eggs and sure. Gatorade. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and diet shakes. <laughs> Victor seems to be cooling it with the binge eating, too, and he actually starts to to do things. In addition to cleaning the kitchen, he's out there and then... Finally, when the opportunity presents itself, he manages to converse with Darlene at the grocery store in a positive way. It doesn't insult the audience by making us believe that he's immediately going to fucking be in a relationship with Darlene or anything like that. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Mm -hmm. But the positive thing is he's talking to her. She seems kind of interested in what he's saying. You don't even hear it that much because they kind of pull away to the dog's POV outside. And you're kind of like, well, look at him. Look at him talking to a woman with her big hair, her I know. giant head of hair. <laughs> she's got a very '90s, early 90s style of hair. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> they found love in a hopeless place. I, I wanted to make a joke in a
1: reference to something we were talking about before we started recording. I'm not sure if it's going to play, but she's like, my name is Autumn. <laughs> and then that's it, and they both look the camera. Yeah. Credits. It's like, okay, thanks. Thanks for wasting our time. <laughs> Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half out of four stars and remarked its sense of realism. Quote, you've been in places like this. You linger over a second cup of coffee and people watch trying to guess the secrets of the sad-eyed waitress and the drunk at the bar and the pizza cook who looks like he's serving a sentence. Hell yeah, I do. You don't guess the true horror of the place, which is that there are no secrets because everyone here knows all about everyone else. Inside and out, top to bottom and has for years. And then later, when he was reviewing Mangold's 2007 remake of 310 to Yuma, he referred to it positively again, calling it extraordinary. So he really liked the film, and a lot of other critics did too. I really liked it too. Yeah, so thank you to Rob for bringing this one to our attention, and as I said, you can check it out on Netflix if you haven't already seen it. It's one that you definitely need to experience. I don't really think us going through the plot
2: is really going to do
1: it justice because there isn't a ton to the story.
2: No, it's definitely being immersed in this world is such a big part of the experience. Yeah,
1: the world and the lives of the central characters. And there's really an efficiency to conveying those characters to the audience. They don't have to say a lot. They have the right things in place so that we know everything about their world and who they are and how they interact with each other. So thanks to Rob for that one. If you would like to request an episode, please reach out on Twitter at GreatestPod. They are no longer free, though, so we will get into that with you if you so choose. In lieu of recommendations, we decided to watch a movie that is pretty new. It's now available to stream for free on Peacock. It came out at the beginning of this year, basically, called Megan. Mm Mm-hmm. With a three for the E.
2: I am kind of over that stuff, you know? I know that that's just the world we live in now, but... What, the stylizing with
1: the numbers? Well, they've been doing it since seven. Yeah. It's just a thing. You didn't really like it that much. There were things about it that I liked. I I was laughing hysterically (laughs) almost the entire time. I thought it was a hilarious movie.
2: I loved the stuff with the songs.
1: Every time she was singing songs, I It was insane. It was an insane movie. I just wish it was... Like everything in Uh life, I'm like, I wish it was more over the top. I wanted (laughs) it to go further with how insane it was. I watched the unrated version. You think you did too. I don't know. I don't think there was a huge difference other than a little bit more violence and a a lot more fuck. A lot more of the use of the word fuck. Mm -hmm. Because they initially wrote it to be an R-rated movie, and then they realized they could really easily make it PG-13, which is how they released it into theaters. Stars Allison Williams. It's an evil doll. It's not that dissimilar from the recent Chucky Child's Play reboot with Aubrey Plaza. Although, I do think that this movie is better than that reboot. It's yeah. just
2: more campy and funny. I didn't see it, but if you asked me to pick between the two which one I'd rather watch, I would have picked this.
1: I didn't think the Child's Play reboot was terrible, but this is a whole other level of a doll. Yeah. Like, Chucky is still kind of Chucky, even though it's updated sure, to be sure. a little more tech-savvy or This is whatever. like a
2: more futuristic, yeah, almost robot. This
1: is like the latest Blumhouse thing. It was a massive hit. It was like a $12 million budget. It made like $172 million or something. Sort of like Smile, which was not Blumhouse, but it easily could have been. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of predict now, I think, which horror movies are really going to capture the general public's imagination. I know. And I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't see it earlier with Smile. Because when I saw the trailer for Smile, I was like, okay. and It ended <laughs> up being better than the trailer made it seem. But I just wasn't hyped about it at all. Mm-hmm. But then I overheard people. At Best Buy talking about it. They're like, have you seen this trailer for Smile? This movie looks awesome. I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> and then it's a huge movie. Right. And then when I saw the trailer for Megan, I'm like, oh, this movie's going to be big. Yeah. You can kind of just tell now what people want. And they want simple, straightforward horror movies. No more of this like meditation on trauma, which is always going to be like the critical darlings. But they just want like goofy, funny horror movies.
2: I'm definitely open to the idea of, if I was watching this with you or something, maybe there would be some more laughs, but I was...
1: I was at the point where, like, early in the movie where they would cut to Megan's face and I would be laughing, because <laughs> I just thought it was so weird and funny. i yeah. Like, yeah. What? what is going on? I don't know if it was intentional. I think they were playing it up sometimes, and I then other times it, yeah. it seemed more self-serious. I don't know.
2: I assume they weren't in- being intentionally campy with this movie.
1: I think so, just because of the face and hair of yeah. Megan. Like, it's so over the top
2: to right. me. Right. And then, yeah, the singing and the it dancing. It almost and... seems like an SNL parody type thing. <laughs> Except it's way funnier than yeah, it yeah. would be on SNL. <laughs> Dude, the, the singing stuff, though, I was losing it. It's so good When she starts and singing funny. Titanium. Yeah, <laughs> I was fucking dying. <laughs> what? It's so out of nowhere, yeah. too.
1: I don't know, and then it. I just think like when the turn, like the inevitable evil turn that starts happening. I just thought that was hilarious too, because although it just so... seemed
2: sinister the entire time. To I me. know that's yeah. why it was funny. Yeah. you are
1: like, of course this is happening. Right. Like, and no one seems to be paying attention and seeing how this is going to be so <laughs> dangerous. It's like, of course this is a bad idea. Look at this thing; I it know. looks evil. <laughs> I thought it was really funny and entertaining. I would recommend checking it out it, It's probably not for everyone. I was scrolling through people on letterbox that I guess I follow. I was looking yeah. through those and it was it was a wide I'm sure range people who did not like it at all to a lot of like three and a half stars, which is probably where like I would have it mm. and then you know some people who crazily would have it higher than that or whatever. Yeah. but it was definitely a, a big mix of responses to it. It got pretty decent reviews. I think it had like a a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But it's the type of movie that I know we just did a whole fucking give us a second about this kind of shit. But it truly is the type of movie that I'm glad comes to streaming. Oh, Cause sure. Like, yeah. I don't know. If I was still in my teens or 20s, I'd probably be psyched to see like Blumhouse movies and stuff. But, you know, I'm not really like running out to no. the theater for fucking these Cheap ass Blumhouse horror movies. So when a good one comes along or a funny one, I can quickly check it out on Peacock or something, definitely, and then move on with my life. Yep. it's not a huge commitment. It's
2: a perfect situation.
1: Yes. All right. So we do have an email to read, and this will address. All right. Let's go out with a bang here, of Matt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's always so concerned. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not mean enough. <laughs> when I edit the episodes, I'm like, I need to be harder on this motherfucker. <laughs> This email comes to us from Johnny. All right.
2: Folks,
1: he opens with.
2: Oh, I love it.
1: Thank you for finally creating an email so that those of us who do not use social media can reach out to you. Your podcast is incredible. oh I work in film TV here in LA. Wow. Wow. And I probably listen to at least a dozen movie podcasts, and I can honestly say that yours is at or near the very top in cool. terms of quality and entertainment. Thank you, Johnny. So this is sort of a template for all of you emailers Yeah, of please, this is how
2: it gets read. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Keep up the great work. And please know that there are likely a lot of other people out there like me who are big fans of yours, but you just don't know it yet.
2: Hmm. No, yeah, I'd say so.
1: In other words, stop threatening to cancel the show. Do we threaten (laughs) to cancel it still? It's not a threat, guys. It's reality. (laughs) Well, no, I wrote back and I said I have years planned out, so don't worry. Yeah.
2: It's more of a mental illness thing than anything.
1: (laughs) Smiley face, Johnny. And then P.S., I will definitely pay you guys to cover a movie. Just give me some time to compare my favorites list to what you've already done, so that, that is you a try task. to find a gem you have yet to cover. PPS, Zach, for God's sake, be nicer to Matt. <laughs> two, two exclamation points! I was like, "Am I really that mean to Matt?" We make sure some demeanor. jokes. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> we just bust balls. Uh, I don't know. I think there's some realness <laughs> behind some of the some of your commentary, <laughs> especially when I get mad about you not. Knowing
1: who Debbie Harry was. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I know who she was, just for
2: weeks. (laughs) Not facial recognition.
1: Well, Johnny, you would not be the first to pay for a listener request in case you didn't join us before, or I don't know if I mentioned it in this episode, but yes, we Mm. are on that path. So please, if you are interested, you can pay for one. The easiest way to do so would be to cash app us the money on Twitter through our tip jar, but. We will accommodate other ways too. I guess we'll we can figure out whatever. But reach out on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Questions, comments, concerns, whatever. We love to hear from everyone. You can reach out through the DMs if you want. Whatever you want to do, you can also ask for a free sticker and we'll mail it to you. The email address, GreatestPod at Gmail com. Maybe we'll read your email on the
2: show. Who knows? If it's a positive one.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not something that's going to be happening every episode. I doubt we're going to get that many emails. It would be fun, though, actually. It could happen.
2: somebody sent us an email just fucking trashing us. That would be fun to read.
1: Anything that would be fun to read is up
2: for grabs. Also,
1: Um, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review. I know it's probably redundant at this point, in one ear, out the other, but the reviews... And the ratings on Apple Podcasts are a huge motivator, for yeah. sure.
2: Yeah. And tell a friend.
1: Yeah. Please spread the word out there. You know, we're not looking to become like a huge podcast, but no. we, we'd appreciate a few more listeners, probably. Yeah. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. And if you find us from listening to this, and you've created an account, or you already had one, and you follow us... Just give us a comment on one of our reviews or something and let us know that you're from the show and we'll follow you back because as I've said many, many times, it's not like oh I'm just oh I have so many followers. It's more followers come and go. It's it's kind of a weird app in that mm-hmm. sense. Like people try to farm followers and then whatever. So I'm Change. not really paying that close attention to whoever follows me all the time. It's it's just not something to worry about. But I would like to follow anyone who listens to the show, for sure.
2: Yeah, a while ago we were kind of saying we enjoy hearing from people either on Twitter or through the reviews, what was the episode that you found us through. Right, That's The email is an option for that now, too.
1: Yeah, if you're going to email us, you can let us know what episode you found us through, or you can ask us any kind of questions that you might want to know our answers to, like Luke did for the give us a second when we read his email, so... Any kind of questions, comments, concerns?
2: (laughs) It's concerning.
1: Your episode choices are concerning. I don't know. Whatever your concern would be. Or, you know, I guess Johnny had some concerns that we might be canceling the podcast at any moment. Or
2: that you're too abusive to me. Well, that's... Yeah.
1: No. (laughs) Not enough, really. If you only knew the truth. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to... Rob, for the listener request, hopefully we, we did your movie justice, and here's a special treat, something for anyone who's stuck to the very, very end. Whoa. Next week, James Mangold double feature. That's right. Holy shit. One of those movies we mentioned at the beginning that James Mangold directed, we are doing back-to-back Mangold movies. We'll get into the reasons why, I guess maybe more next week, but that's something I don't think we've ever done before, back-to-back with the same director. Have we? Other than part one and part two of the same movie? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, yeah. It seems like probably not. <laughs> you don't know. If I gave you a list of five movies and I'm like, which one of these have we not done or have done, If you know, whatever. Right. You probably would get it wrong.
2: <laughs> probably,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I've lost track. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
0: What? It's hard for you, my baby Because it's hard for me, my baby
2: His girlfriend had a really weird fetish. Uh, she used to like to dress up as herself and then act like a fucking bitch all the time.